during a long list of uh, announcements and what have you, but now we call your attention to the Word of God. I want to read this morning, and I'm not going to make a lot of disclaimers for what I'm about to preach. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. If you were not at a barbecue yesterday, you'll probably be at one tomorrow. Don't forget what the weekend's about. You wouldn't be having those barbecues if we had not had men and women who are willing to sacrifice their time, their blood, their life, their careers to go fight overseas to protect the United States of America, that we can enjoy the freedom that we enjoy today. I thank God for America, and I thank God for those who are willing to pay the ultimate price. But I make no excuses for what I'm about to preach. It's a part of the Word of God, and we preach all of it. Jude 23. The Bible said, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, <clears throat> hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. The writer said, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. I want to title my message this morning in the form of a question. Does hell still exist? Does hell still exist? Everybody say thank God for the word. Thank you for standing. God bless you. You may be seated. I recently read a story of a man going to England for a meeting. He was a minister and he was going to England for a meeting. But he had been instructed that when he passes into the country of Great Britain, that he cannot tell the people at customs that he is a minister, a pastor, or a missionary. He must tell them in order to enter the country that he is a teacher, an educator, or a professor in order to gain entrance into that country. Now consider with me this morning for a few moments that this is a country that once hosted the great London pulpits for Charles Spurgeon, Joseph Parker, G. Campbell Morgan, and David Martin Lloyd-Jones. These men's sermons are still in print even today long after their deaths. Lloyd-Jones was the last of these men to die, and he died in 1981. Spurgeon and Parker preached there in the late 1800s, and Morgan was there in the early 1900s. How could it happen that this country could now be opposed to any kind of Christian evangelism regardless of what brand it may be? How could a place that once had the very fabric of its beginning to be Christianity has, have drifted so far? This nation, the nation of Great Britain, once known for its Christian missionary endeavors, this nation once hosted churches that served as a comfort for its massive working class of people. This nation was one that preached that heaven was going to be a place where all had the opportunity to go, no matter what their social standing may be. Something happened 
among the ministers in that nation. William Gladstone, who was once the prime minister and also a prominent man in the church, gave a clue to it. William Gladstone said, Hell has been relegated to the far-off corners of the Christian mind, there to sleep in the deep shadow as a thing needless in our enlightened and progressive age. When you begin to track the history of that nation, you will ask the question, where has hell gone? Once you answer that sufficiently, you will discover that it is where the church went also. Because when hell disappeared, church disappeared. If hell disappears, let me preach to grace here for a moment. If hell disappears out of our mind, then there's no need for evangelism. If hell disappears, there's no need for holiness. If hell disappears, there's no need for worship. If hell disappears, there's no need for a holy confrontation over fleshly weakness and worldliness. If hell disappears, there's then no real need for a true church. Listen very carefully. Hell began to disappear in Great Britain when the authority of the Scriptures began to be questioned. If a man ever doubts the authority of Scripture, things will soon go missing in his theology. For those who do not necessarily doubt the authority of the Scriptures, but choose to get sloppy with their interpretation of Scripture, they are just as guilty. And before long, hell disappears from their sight as well. Another prominent preacher of Great Britain, F.W. Robertson of Brighton, who was among the most popular of the Victorian preachers, had this to say about the preachers and the congregations of his day. He said, We have learned to smile at the idea of an eternal hell, for in bodily awful intolerable torture we believe in no longer. He then included himself among the intellectually and academically escapees who sealed their own doom. But what has happened across the pond, what has happened in Great Britain, has found its way now to America. And now hell has almost disappeared from our society as well. We, as Pentecostals included, have literally become ashamed of the gospel no longer like Paul who proclaimed in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and to also the Greek. We are ashamed of the gospel that demands that sense of coming to Christ, a bloody Christ, a bloody cross to seek redemption. 
Are we ashamed of a gospel that demands repentance, water baptism in the name of Jesus and the receiving of the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues? Are we ashamed of a gospel that calls for separation from the world? Have we become ashamed of a gospel that promises a home, an eternal home made of golden streets and pearly gates? Are we ashamed of a gospel that says you will have to endure the punishment of hell for your sin on this earth? If a Christian bookstore were visited by any or all of us here today, if you look at what the top ten Christian bestsellers in our generation are, you will see that most of these books cater towards self-help and self-improvement with somewhat of a God twist in it. For those not falling into that category, the rest of the fair is comprised of things that will help you limp through the struggles and catastrophes of life. Listen very carefully. The reality is that much of the trouble that comes to our lives often is self-induced because of a poor, because of poor, ungodly choices that has landed us there. I want to say that again. The reality is that much of the trouble that comes to our lives often is self-induced because of poor, ungodly choices that has landed us in that place of trouble. When we finally see the inside of our soul and are willing to give ourselves to a prevailing honesty, what we find is that we don't need comfort and self-help nearly as much as we need some good old-fashioned repentance. By that is a hard product to market in our very consumer-friendly country. A number of years ago, a pastor was summoned to the bedside of a dying man from his church. When he entered the room, the man extended his hand and with deep emotion said, I'm dying and you never warned me of the state that I was in. You did not tell me about the danger that I was going to face. You never told me I was neglecting the salvation of my own soul. The pastor was taken aback and said, Oh no, my brother, I took every reasonable opportunity to talk to you about spiritual matters and the actions of the church and the importance of living for God. The man replied back to the pastor and said, Yes, that is true. You did do those things, but it wasn't enough. You never came close to me and closed the door and took me by the collar of my coat and told me that I was unconverted and that if I died in this state, I would be lost and now I'm dying and I will be lost forever because you were too soft in your approach. It is told that this had such a huge effect on that pastor that from then on he went about his task with an urgency and fear for the soul of men. 
I'm going to come back to a concluding point about that story, but let me say in passing that I oftentimes feel that our ministry here at Grace is oftentimes too soft. I like to give people latitude and I like to have be patient and, and what have you. But I, for some reason, and I'm sure every other pastor has as well, but for some reason it seems like that I'm sometimes encompassed about by people that ring my telephone all the time. They want the self-help. They want the improvement. And they want to be comforted because they're in a miserable condition over poor choices that they made concerning their life years ago. They started dabbling in worldliness and they started dabbling in sin and they started dabbling in things of the world and now their marriage is a mess and their kids are going awry and things are falling apart and their marriage is falling apart. Now they're saying, Pastor, please help and comfort me. What they need is an old-fashioned time of just blubbering and snotting and crying tears with their face on the floor and say, God, I'm in trouble because I've become a sinner. I'm backslidden and I'm not living right. I'm not obeying the Word of God. I've abandoned truth. I've abandoned morality. I've abandoned principle. I've abandoned the ways of God. What we need today is not so much of self-help and self-improvement as much as we need an old-fashioned altar and say, God, I want to live my life the rest of my life the way you want me to live. And yes, sometimes I feel like I'm too soft even though many times I'm told that pastor your way too hard but I'm here to tell somebody, I'm here to tell everybody, if you're not living for God, I'm sorry today, I can't sugarcoat it, and I can't make it just real easy, but there's an eternity waiting on you that you're not prepared for. You can play your games, and you can live in sin, and you can justify it all, but there's a place that is waiting on fallen man. There's a place, there's a place that we've forgotten about, but I can assure you today that it still exists and God's plan and design for that place is still being implemented today. If you die without God in your life, there's but one option. Does hell still exist? I proclaim to you today with everything in me. Oh, yes, it does. So think about the person you can't forgive. Think about the grudge you're toting. Think about the lie that you told. Think about the way that you've lived your life up until now. I'm here to tell you the Bible said, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. I know today I'm not preaching a popular message, but John Smith is sitting here today and can verify that just a few weeks ago, I believe it's his dad's first cousin, had to say goodbye to their two-year-old grandchild because the child drowned in a ditch by the roadside, and it happened quickly. It happened in an instant. I could go on and on here today, but there's nobody guaranteed tomorrow 
Sister Kathy, if you don't mind, they said goodbye a couple of years ago to a beautiful grandson. I don't believe he was yet 12 years old when the accident happened. I have a good friend that said goodbye to his 12-year-old son a number of years ago. There's a very prominent businessman in Central, very prominent businessman in Central that said goodbye to his 26-year-old son as a result of a car accident a few weeks ago. There's not a person here today that's guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the next beat of your heart and the next breath you inhale. There is a place that you go when you're not right with with God. It may not exist in your mind and it, you may never think about it, but I can promise you here today, it still exists. It's still real and it's still the eternal destiny of the fallen man. I'm quite doubtful that it had made any difference. Had the pastor called the dying man into a room and closed the door and grabbed him by the back of his collar and shook him and said, you're not right, man. You're not right with God. You need to get right with God. There's people sitting here today in this building. I'd love to grab you by your shirt collar. Brother Merrill knows. We've talked about it many, many times that there's people that said here service in and service out and you're not right with God and you said you're not right with God I'm not being judgmental but you're doing nothing about it as though to think that I have another 50 years to live for God or to get my heart right with God rather I'd love to grab you by the throat and say hey and I know those kind of practices are not acceptable so I come to you in the pulpit today whether you ever think about it or not it still exists Preachers that comfort, we love comfort. But all of us are going to face death one of these days. And there will be a final accounting that happens at that moment. And it behooves all of us to be prepared. Despite our uncomfortable thoughts about hell, even though hell may have disappeared from our pulpits, our books, and our songs, it has is, it is not disappeared. It has not disappeared from Scripture. J.C. Ryle said, The watchman who keeps silent when he sees a fire is guilty of gross neglect. The watchman who keeps silent when he sees a fire is guilty of gross neglect. The doctor who tells us we are getting wet when we are in fact dying is a false friend. And the minister who keeps back hell from his people in his sermons is neither a faithful nor a charitable man. I submit to you today, if I, along with my pastoral staff, did not care about you and our community, I would never preach this subject again. But I care. I care. It means everything to me. Sister Murphy, to know that you and I are blood washed and our kids are blood washed and their spouses are born again, their extended families are born again. I'm anticipating a great reunion one of these days on that golden shore with my family. I thank God for that. 
But if you are here today and cannot stay the same, we need to change the way we think and we need to change the way we see things. It bothers me that parents don't have their kids in our altars. We have kids that have reached an age of accountability that don't have the baptism of the Holy Ghost and our parents come and go out of here like there's nothing to it. You understand that your child now has the potential? How about your young people? Well, I'm going to let them dabble in sin a little bit. That'll teach them. I hope they don't die during that time. Are you ready to answer for that as well? It behooves all of us today to grab a hold of this very simple thought and put it in the forefront of our mind and think about it every day, that it behooves every one of us every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year. We must be right with God. So what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? The authority on hell is not the universities, nor the seminaries, or Bible colleges. That's not the authority. Furthermore, the thoughts about hell cannot be best understood by the talking heads on cable television or the bloggers on the internet. Be careful what you read on the internet. Very few people have ever met the people that write that stuff. You don't know who's writing it. And it don't matter how good it sounds. If it's not alignment with the scripture, you need to go to a new website. Hello. The best place to understand hell is to look to what God's book has to say about it. Jesus had much to say about it. Oddly enough, it was in his inaugural sermon, the very first sermon he preached on this planet, the Sermon on the Mount, that we began to get a taste of what hell is going to be like. Let me remind you today, the last things that most preachers will do when they're going to try out for a church or if you're trying to try out for a position in the church, the last thing you want to do is get up and preach a sermon on hell. I want to be your pastor, bless God, and you're going to burn, you're going to split the pit. I'm here to tell you, they vote me in as your pastor. That ain't what you do. But Jesus did it. In his very first sermon, he introduces us to this subject matter that all of us try so hard to avoid. His authority was not coming from the listener. His authority was coming from his sender. It was coming from another world. You'll find that, that uh, when you don't try to be tied to the approval and disapproval of men, you can preach with a whole lot more liberty. That doesn't mean you're nasty and mean about it. It just means that you are tied to the truth and you have to preach and teach truth. And everybody said amen. Jesus loaded up his first sermon, his very first sermon, with such statements in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. 
But I say unto you, this is his first sermon, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. In his first inaugural sermon, he said, If you don't treat your fellow man right, you're going to burn in hell. those who were given two adulterous looks men who looked at women inappropriately and acted inappropriately or they were lecherous or lewd in the sin of the eye and with their hands Jesus in his inaugural sermon had a comment about that as well he said if thy right eye offend thee pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Let me explain. When he said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off, He didn't mean go to the doctor and let them give you pre-surgery examination and let them give you an anesthetic and let them put you under uh, and let them put you to sleep for a while so you won't feel anything. And then when you come to, they give you all kind of pain medication. That ain't what he was talking about. He essentially meant, and if you don't believe it, you can study it. Just put your hand out there on a stump and let your friend take an ax and cut it and just bury the nub down in the dirt so you don't bleed to death. That's what he meant when he said that. He said it's better to go through that than it is to be cast into the lake of fire. Later ministry, later in his ministry, he would say in Matthew 18 verse 8, Wherefore, if thy hand or foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them far from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life, halt, or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If thy eye offend thee, just stick your finger. Get a stick if your eye offends you. If you can't help looking at stuff inappropriate, just pick up a little small stick and just stick it behind your eye and just pop it out. Be better to do that than to be lost forever. When he was commissioning his disciples, He knew that they would be under incredible worldly hellish pressure to give in and quit. And he said to them that was there uh, that they were, it was the fear of God is what they were to be concerned about. He instructed them in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus did not skirt this issue. He did not beat around the bush when it came to this. And the Lord is appealing to their sense of courage for them to grasp the importance of doing the will of God. For doing the will of God, whatever it may be, is always priority over the option. Even when doing the will of God is under the most extreme and crucial circumstances. 
Any temporary discomfort here is more preferable to the permanent judgment that will come with being unfaithful. Jesus also said something about those who opposed him. He said their origin is from hell. In Matthew 23 and verse 15, he said, One to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself. I could spend a long time telling you what Paul had to say about hell, but let me skip over and let me tell you what John the Revelator had to say about it. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, the Bible said, And the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saint. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In this single passage, there is a pitcher of wine that is being poured out. And when it's poured out, it turns the world into a state of intoxication. They're intoxicated literally on the judgment of God. This unleashing of God's wrath shows that people will have to deal with extreme suffering. This unleashing of God's wrath shows that some in a drunken stupor of God's wrath will experience physical death and destruction. To get a picture of the wrath of God during this time becomes clear when we put three Old Testament passages of Scripture. In Psalm 75 and verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. Jeremiah said in chapter 25, verse 15, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine of this fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. Jeremiah went on to say in chapter 51 and verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand and made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore the nations are mad, for they're crazy. And the effect of Babylon's wine, the effect of Babylon's wine is intoxicating. If the effect of Babylon's wine is so intoxicating, and people even in our world today are drunken, on the sins of the flesh, which is what Babylon represents, carnal and godless. If they're drunk on her wine, the Bible said when God intoxicates men with his judgment, they will be far more drunk then than they are now. That's how in the book of Revelation men will do the crazy things against God because they're in a drunken stupor. Babylon's wine was mixed with water and was diluted Babylon's wine made the nation submissive to her for a temporary time. Babylon's wine 
will wear off in time, but God's wine will cause the ungodly to get drunk, and his wine will not be diluted with water, will be effective to accomplish its purpose, and God's wine will not be temporary. It will never wear off. God's wine will make the nation submissive to his judicial uh, position forever. Most sinners are like a drunken man that has fallen into a fire, and in their mind, hell doesn't exist, and the man feels so secure but he doesn't know that he's about to burn forever. Talking about the saint. Is literally in our world, and I'll go as far as to say, is there's people here today that's literally living in the suburbs of hell and you don't even know it. You cannot help yourself. You're not aware of your spiritual plight. I wonder if we really know what our responsibility is. And I'm preaching to grace here today. What, what it really is our responsibility to those who are lost around us. Some are lost in the world. And there's even some that are lost in the church. Consider the phrase in Revelation 14. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Throughout Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 14, in chapter 2, verse 18, in chapter 3, verse 18, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, 8, verse 5, 8, 7 through 8, 15, verse 2, 19 through 12, the image of fire is used for judgment, and there will be an intense suffering associated with the judgment of hell. Does it exist? Yes, it does. But it heightens when John writes in the description and says the presence of brimstone will also be there. I want you to envision in your mind a picture of the eruption of a volcano with molten lava running like rivers. People rolling about in that lake of fire, bobbing up and down, sinking and then coming back up. Meanwhile, listening to the screams that come from heaven. John also used the word tormented, also has the association of spiritual and psychological suffering mixed in with all this pain. It will be accompanied by weeping and mourning, the Bible said, and gnashing of teeth. I want to tell you whatever it is that's standing between you and God this morning, take this at face value. It's not worth going to hell over. not worth going to hell over an offended spirit, over lustful activity, over holding a grudge. It's not worth going to hell over forsaking the commandments of God. It's not worth walking around with the slime of sin covering your life. It's not worth being a drunken covenant breaker. It's not worth being a prayerless man full of yourself. It's not worth the pride that keeps you from repentance. It's not worth the unconfessed sin that you have in your life. It's not worth the self-justification you have for being a spiritual lowlife. It's just simply not worth going to hell over. I read a story a fireman wrote about some of his experiences about fires that he personally had been involved in putting out. He told about a time in January of 1965. I know it goes back a ways, but it does not reduce the relevance of the story. When he tried to help a lieutenant firefighter out of a fire, he wrote that the fire broke out in a large building 
and the Air Force firemen showed up to put it out. And when they got there, a portion of the building on one end was engulfed with fire and they soon discovered that there was a lieutenant in the building, but his escape had been blocked by fire. So he turned around and started toward the end of the building where the fire had not uh, made it to that end yet to try to find another exit. But the bad part was that there, there weren't any alternative exits. So this fireman ran to a window. And about the time he saw the lieutenant he was trying to save coming, he decided to go to that window and try to break it so the man could escape. But the only problem was that there was burglar bars covering that window and the lieutenant on the inside couldn't crawl through even if the window was broken off and the fireman couldn't, he couldn't get the bars off the window. He said this man, this man was on the other side of the window and he said he could see the fire racing up behind the man but he could not get him out. There was no possible way to get him out. And he, in just seconds as the fire approached this man from behind, he could literally see his ears burning and running down the side of his face as the fire began to envelop him. He said he could hear his screams and he said that that experience haunts him to this day and he said he he rarely goes a week that he doesn't see that man's eyes burning in that fire, those horrible terror, pain-filled eyes pleading with him to get me out of that fire. Jude said it like this. Others save with fear pulling them out of the fire. We've we've heard God's affirmation what you just heard was God's affirmation to what you just heard preached here today. stand with me this morning there's people that formerly attended grace that was here they were here with us five ten years ago but for various reasons their life terminated so I'll ask all of us here today what makes us think that we'll be here in the next five to ten years. 
I don't like scare tactics, and I very rarely use them, but Jude said that sometimes you have to use fear. There's people here today, if your life terminated, your future, your eternity don't look good. And all I'm doing is asking you to do something about it. Right now, I'm the greatest friend you have because I have the courage to look you in the eye and to tell you that your greatest business today is not lunch and not a nap and not going to family or friends' house this afternoon. The greatest business, the greatest priority of your life right now is making sure you're right with God. I want to be very careful here today in my next remark, but somebody sent me a text yesterday and said my car's broken down. I guess it's better to be broken down on the weekend than to be broken down during work. What's more important, your job or church, which is your conduit and being right with God, what's most important? Are there moms and dads here today that have kids that's not right with God? Does that bother you? Are you concerned about it? There are people here today whose parents aren't right with God. Does it bother you? I know it's a hard message. And I know we'd rather serve cotton candy and have you leaving here today feeling real happy about yourself. But there's a content of the Bible called hell that's never gone away. And I would not be doing you justice today not to tell you about it. Are you right with God? We've heard from God today. What else does God have to do? What else can he do? So the rest of this service today is in your hands. Do you want to be right with God? And what are you willing to do in order to make that happen? Does hell still exist? Yes, it does. And you don't want to go there. So I'm going to ask everybody in the building, this is in your hands. If you want to come up to the front, if you want to kneel down where you're at, if you want to stay standing where you're at, it's up to you. But your priority today, more than anything else, is to be right with God. You've got to be right with God. You've got to be ready to meet God. At any time, at any moment, you've got to be ready to meet God. You've got to be ready to meet God. Would you come I'm all over the house? And just find a place to pray. You can kneel. You can stand. Whatever you want to do. But all I'm asking you today is to be right with God before you leave. Just do whatever it takes to get right with God before you leave. Praise the Lord as they sing, as they play. Everybody all across the building. Don't worry about what someone else is doing. Don't worry about what someone else is doing. If they want to pray, they'll pray. It's not about them right now. It's about you. It's about you. How do you feel about your soul, about your eternity? What do you think right now about your relationship with God? Everybody in the house is praying. Everybody's praying. Everybody's praying, God, I've got to have you. God, I've got to get right. God, I've got to be right. God, I've got to stay right. God, forgive me of my sin. God, forgive me of what I've done. God, forgive me of all unrighteousness. God, forgive me of what I've done wrong against others. God, forgive me. I've got to be right with God. I've got to reconcile with my enemy. I've got to go back to them I've hurt.
I've got to make it right because God, I've got to be right with you. I've got to be right with God. I've got to be right with God. Everybody's praying. Everybody's praying. Everybody's praying. Everybody's praying. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Everybody's praying. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. This is your moment. This is your moment. This is your opportunity. I've got to be right with God. 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 Hallelujah to God. Hallelujah to God. Everybody's praying right now. Everybody pray right now. Everybody pray. Everybody pray. Talk to God in your own way. Talk to God in your own way. God, I've got to have you. God, I've got to have you in my life. God, I've got to be right with you. I want to live my life pleasing to you. Hallelujah to God. Everybody pray. Everybody pray. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry for my sin. God, wash me clean. God, wash me clean. I'm tired of the condemnation. God, I'm tired of the guilt. God, I've got to be clean. Got to be pure. Jesus. 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 